Episode 32, The Already But Not Yet Salvation Language in the New Testament, Part B. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. So here we are just picking up from where we cut off the previous conversation just to make it into two episodes rather than one. So here we go. And I pledge to live out my life. I have a good conscience about this. I am not just saying it. It is my sincere intention to do this. And how is that expressed? Well, according to this passage, it was in baptism. So it was the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Well, what if they didn't keep faithful to that pledge? Well, we've already read about that, that, that their, their faith would be in vain then, right? Uh, back up 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he, uh, he said, you know, in, in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Well, here in 1 Peter 3, 18, uh, suppose they had made this pledge of a good conscience toward God and they did not uh, keep up living that way, well, then it would be in vain, wouldn't it? The baptism would have been in vain. The gesture would have been in vain. The pledge would have been in vain. Their intentions would have been in vain. They were going to be judged by whether they actually did it or not. And the, again, this is so contrary to the more popular view that no, it's just a free gift, bro, and and it has no bearing whatsoever on how you behave. And this is what so many will say. Baptism is such a difficult topic. And again, we're so not going to be able to cover it all today. But I will ask this. Um, uh, now, if, if you're like a full preterist, you might think that baptism is already uh, fulfilled and that it is not, uh, there's no need for it any longer. And so I want you to understand some people have, have that view of it. Others think, oh, no, it was just some sort of symbol thing. Uh, and, then, and then others like, no, this is actually, you, you, you had to do it. This was how you, uh, how you made that declaration, how you made that confession of Jesus. And others would be like, no, no, that was just through saying the words, Jesus is Lord, right? So there's tons of disagreement over this. Uh, however, uh, if, you, if you're... Uh, like full preterist or the, you might call hyper preterist, you might think that um, b- 
baptism is now obsolete, that it is uh, no longer needed. And uh, we could discuss that someday. Uh, however, some would say, well, no, it was just a symbol. Uh, and they'll say, what is the thing? They'll say, oh, uh, baptism is uh, an outward sign of an inward grace. And I would ask, ah, well, if the outward sign is not there, does that mean that the inward grace is not there? And I've never heard a direct answer to that question. And then someone else will say, well, baptism is a work. I'll say, well, is not prayer a work? Is not reading the Bible a work? And they'll say, well, sometimes if they're backed into a corner, well, well yes, it is. <laughs> and say, okay, so paint me a picture of a guy who gets saved, but never once uh, makes himself pray, never once makes himself read the Bible, never once makes himself do a good deed, treat anybody lovingly, never once makes himself forgive somebody. He exercises zero self-control, zero diligence, zero restraint. And tell me that this guy is saved as one who lives in the image of God and has a rightful place uh, through God's forgiveness in the holy city. And of course, that's an absurd picture. And everybody knows it's absurd, and yet they get backed into that corner where they have to say, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly how it is, Jack. <laughs> like, well, you just set aside a boatload of Scripture to, uh, to come to that position. But uh, this is, this, it, it reduces it to absurdity. And, uh, but they often don't realize that. They'll go with the absurd answer and not realizing, yeah, that's kind of absurd. So this is what you get when you have an illogical uh, take on things. So anyway, uh, I, so if, if you can't tell already, I don't think you can rule out baptism as something that, uh, that in the first century they did not mean was a necessary part of this whole thing. But if you're one of the moderns who's in that uh, no works camp, uh, and, and I don't mean to get caught up in this, but, you know, they'll use the very verse that undermines them when they turn to Ephesians 2.8. I'm going to turn over there and find that real quick. And I'm in the New International Version. Let's see here. Uh, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. And they will really emphasize that part so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, this is what Paul was teaching in their generation, that they were created to do good works. They were prepared in advance. That was the plan. It was no accidental thing. Hey, y'all, you know, as long as y'all are saved, you might think about doing a good work from time to time. You know, if it's not too much trouble, you know, if the Spirit moves you, right? No, no, it was not some target of opportunity. It was the plan. And so my question is, well, if you got saved through this faith and this grace and the, the gift of God and uh, not through works and all that, 
but you're not doing the very good works you were created to do, how's that going to go in the judgment? You know, you wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I required this, but you did that. Isn't that the language of the parables? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do what I say? Hmm. Right? So this is an example of people twisting things, deciding not to listen to this word or that phrase, but I'll listen to this part I, I like over here. You know, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not from yourselves. You see, Jack, that all that praying stuff, that's like you doing works. And all the, or all that Bible study, no, that's trying to earn your own salvation. Nope. I don't know any church that teaches you can earn your own salvation. You know, how could your works make God forgive your sins? Everybody sins. Everybody. We all need God to forgive us, else we're doomed. Well, he forgives freely, but there's a limit to his forgiveness. He, he is not going to be duped by anybody. He's not going to be taken in by a pretender and not realize that this person is not sincere. There will be no insincere person in the holy city, in that heavenly Jerusalem. It doesn't work that way. So if you're not doing the very works for which you were created or recreated in Christ, uh, something's terribly wrong with you. And this will not go unnoticed by God. Uh, although... You can find a lot of preachers who will tell you, that, oh, no, the Christian doesn't have to go through this judgment, you see. That's for the unsaved. Well, that's not what Paul said. Well, the blood of Christ covers me. You know, when I get to that meeting with God and God asks me something, well, Jesus is going to step in between us and say, I've got it covered. I've got him taken care of. That's how they tell the story often. They're not always. Well, that's not what the Bible says. So you have to choose, well, do you want the real gospel or do you want some substitute counterfeit version? So anyway, back to uh, 1 Peter 3, 18. This baptism now saves you. Why in the world would Peter use those words if he were in this modern day camp of, oh no, that's works. That's terrible, bro. That's like heresy, bro. That's from Satan. Well, that's what the modern camp, uh, so many of them say. But why in the world would Peter use that word save in the same sentence with baptism if he had this same modern aversion to the idea? If he thought they were, it was anathema to put the two together, why would he do that? Because he wasn't thinking about it the same way you do. And I realize not everybody in the audience thinks this, so pardon my uh, overgeneralization there. But I think you get the point. He wasn't conditioned the same way that the modern churcher is often conditioned. So, uh, so here we have a few passages, at least, that consider salvation an ongoing thing in some sense. And even if you don't look it up by means of the word saved or salvation and such, you certainly can find it in lots of other ways. There's a lot of language in the New Testament. I know who, he who started a good work in you is able to complete it and all this kind of um, language about their ongoing maturation and such. So um, that is definitely worth a separate look into that. 
So uh, anyway, we have the salvation talk, some in the past tense, some in the ongoing, and a lot of it in the future tense. And that's how they talked about it, or wrote about it, at least in the first century. But what about us? Why do so many Christians today think about salvation in the past tense, as what happened to them when they prayed Jesus into their heart at a revival meeting when they were 29, or when they were baptized at 17, or when they went through confirmation at 12, or whatever is their particular uh, story and tradition? When I googled, are you saved, in quotes, I get 5.8 million returns. So, you know, and, and this is really rough. Uh, <laughs> this is what I call a, a poor man's survey, where I don't have money to survey 100,000 people and see what they say. So you just sort of say, well, what are people saying on Google, right? So are you saved? And notice, you know, this is... Uh, uh, the, the past tense kind of uh, usage of the word, 5.8 million times. So people are asking that question a lot today. Uh, but what would I get if I Googled, will you be saved? Well, for whatever it's worth, I get uh, th about 3.8 million. So that's roughly 66% as often as the are you saved. Uh, if I Google, am I saved, I get 1.7 million returns. But if I Google, will I be saved, I only get 635,000. Again, that just happens to be about 66% per, as often. Um, that is those looking ahead versus those looking behind. Is this a reliable statistical tool? Oh, no. No, no, no. I use this kind of search sometimes just, just to check myself. Uh, and you can never rely too much on what you get, but you know, I'll, I'll run, if you want to find the popularity of an idea, I will run it against other common ideas. You know, well, how many times is NFL mentioned on the internet? Well, how many you know, millions is that? Okay. Well, if I want to judge the popularity of uh, treasure hunting versus NFL, well, okay. You, you'll find that treasure hunting is much less popular, uh, at least based on the assumption that if it's talked about less, it's less popular. Well, again, I don't hold this out as some uh, significant, um, uh, you know, analysis about how things go, but I did want to check myself. I certainly predicted before those searches that I'd get more from are you saved than I would be from will you be saved. And uh, of course, there's different ways to say all this. So I, I trust you get my point here that uh, it looks like it probably is a more popular way of thinking about it. And yet the reverse was true in the New, New Testament because it was 18 to 6. Uh, that's three, 3 to 1. And um, uh, talking future about their salvation as opposed to past tense about it. Now, uh, let's... Um, Let's step aside here and do a similar search on a similar topic in the New Testament, and that is on being children of God. And so there are several passages that talk about uh, becoming children of God, and I want you to see that they use the same kind of already but not yet language there too. And so this is just in the order they came up in a search, and it looks like I have, oh, seven passages. Uh, John 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him... Uh, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Uh, did John mean to say that as soon as people believed in Jesus' name, they became children of God? Well, he certainly had the language to say that. Uh, he, in fact, he doesn't say they had the right to be children of God. He says they had the right to become that. And so, you know, this is similar to uh, you who are being saved, right? This idea they would become it. Uh, Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ah, okay, that's present. That's not the ongoing. That, that's the, you know, you are already. Hmm. Look how he uses it here. Is this how Jesus used it? They'd have, or how John used it. Now they have the right to become children. Paul has them already being. Okay, this is what we're getting at. Uh, Romans 9, verse 8, next chapter. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. This is Paul in his frequent discussion about, look, there's Jews and then there's true Jews. And there's Christians and then there's true Christians. Uh, so you're not a Christian in name only. But, you know, really, if you are living out the image, then you're the real deal. And so um, here he's saying it's not the children of the flesh. That is probably talking about the Jews and the, the old covenant, circumcision and so forth. But the ones of the promise, the ones of faith, the ones of Abraham and his, um, his philosophy about God. So um, here he has them as the children of God and does he mean, well, right now, this minute, they're already? Or does he mean, well, look, it's already, but not yet. We understand they haven't really been made the children yet. And so let's keep going. First uh, John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Hmm, okay. So here he says, we are the children of God, not we will be. So that's worth something. It's worth noting. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 10. By this it is evident uh, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, here you have John uh, saying that they are the children of God and not will be. Yet you can back up to Jesus in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, well, he doesn't say they are sons. They shall be called. This is the future tense. And then the final one, Romans eight fourteen, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So, uh, or, uh, yes, uh, sons of God. <clears throat> all right, and so... There's one more. Now, it's not children this time. It's sons of, but, you know, obviously that's the same thing. Different word. Look at Galatians 3.23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned and uh, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Look at that coming faith uh, would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And here we go. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God 
through faith. Well, why didn't he just stop at saying, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God? Why was it necessary to put in through faith? Well, what if they were to abandon their faith? Then it would be in vain, right? If they didn't endure to the end and overcome and such. Uh, it is the by or the through uh, their faith here that uh, they were the sons of God. And they walked if they walked away from that faith or didn't hold to it as strongly as God would require, God being the judge who knows how much is enough and how much is not enough and such, uh, then don't we have to see their sonship as somewhat provisional until God would judge them? Wasn't God going to be the one who was going to have the final say? And who would be counted among his sons and taken to heaven and made like the angels? Well, yes, it was God. And that's how it seems to me that they saw it was provisional. And part of what I are part of why I think that is this exceedingly explicit statement by Paul, Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Obviously, at the time that Paul wrote this, the sons of God had not yet been revealed. It had not been published, which were considered sons of God and which were not. You know, John's telling them uh, in his letter where we just read that, hey, uh, you know who is and who isn't based on how they behave. But God had not yet said, okay, here's the good guys, here are the bad guys. That, you know, it's, there was no sheep and goats uh, judgment at that point. And so... Uh, it was a provisional thing. It, it was waiting for God. <clears throat> now, Paul goes on to talk about this, and this is, I think, one of the biggest problems today, why people are so slow to understand this or why they just flat out refuse to understand all this, uh, is that they don't want to. They don't want to be subject to God's judgment. They want to proclaim themselves exempt from it. And I think that's a very proud thing to do. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. L let me show you why. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 through verse uh, 5 or so. Uh, so this is a paragraph here. But I wanted to get the context down. It's about Paul judging himself. And uh, so here it is. This is how we should uh, one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And Paul was frequently judged by the congregations and by courts. He was hauled off to trial and this and that. Uh, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. And this one, I'm going to read this again. For I am not aware of anything against myself. Now, a lot of us could not say that, but Paul could say it. He was that faithful. He, he had put the sin out of his life. And uh, he said, look, I don't know about anything, but I am not thereby acquitted. Just because I don't know if something's wrong with me, that doesn't mean that I'm acquitted, that it's a done deal. 
so he was not uh, thinking that way about this. Uh, it is the Lord who judges me, he says. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So many Christians today are not listening to this. They're ignoring Paul's counsel. They're ignoring his example. They're ignoring the logic of what he's saying here. This is a completely rational argument he's making that you are not the judge of you. God is. And even if you don't know of anything that's wrong with you, that doesn't mean that you've got this right. God may well have some issue with you that you're so blind that you're not seeing. And so they're just not listening. Jesus had something to say about this, about becoming the sons of God, uh, in Luke 20, verse 36. Um, For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So here he's talking about somebody who would become sons of God, but it appears the way you do that is through also being a son of the resurrection. Well, that's a little bit awkward language to us. What does that mean to be a son of the resurrection? Well, I'm going to suggest it might meant that might have meant that you had to be resurrected. So if you're going to become children of God, which you already are children of God, but you're going to become it. Well, okay. When, uh, when you're raised up, you see, Not before. I mean, sort of before, but not before. Okay. Now, and then Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. See, again, here we have the revelation, and it's on the the day of his wrath. So, uh, again, they're waiting for this judgment to come. And the sons being revealed had something to do with them being resurrected. That's how they're going to be revealed. Something like this. Now, I've studied this out. I want to do a lot more study about it. But I'm telling you, there's something there. They were waiting, looking ahead to something. So I want to read First Peter uh, 1.3 uh, and following. Uh, and so it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, past tense, to a living hope, hope looks ahead, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it had something to do with Jesus being raised. To an inheritance, remember inheritance is a thing that you get after somebody dies and gives it to you. You don't have it now, you get it later. Uh, So uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hmm. Could they inherit it before they got to heaven? No. Uh, Going on, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed at in the last time. Okay, let's unpack this one. They're being guarded. Well, how? Through faith. Oh, if their faith falters as the guarding falter, you bet. It's provisional. It's conditional upon their faith being maintained. And so you're being guarded through faith for what? For a salvation. You see this? You're being guarded to be saved, but it's conditional upon your faith. Well, what if the faith stops? What if you stop behaving faithfully to God? Such that God says, you know, you're not behaving faithfully to me because he's the judge, right? Well, and then what about the salvation? It was, quote, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I was, I'm going to go on with this passage. I'm going to mark my place here so I don't lose it. But um, you have to understand that the apostles believed that Jesus was coming imminently. And uh, if you read in First John, uh, not only does he say these are the latter times or last times or last days, he even uses the language, this is the last day. And that should send us scurrying like, oh my, what did he just say? Did he really mean it that way? Are, are we reading this funny? Are we assuming something here? You know, this is the last day. What? Are you telling me like, when you put the pen down after writing that, that Jesus came right then, right? That's what it might appear. And there was certainly a lot of eminence uh, in their language. And the eminence seems to have increased from the earlier letters to the later ones. Uh, so again, you know, this is the last episode uh, 30 about vetting your beliefs about the, the end times, uh, your expectations rather. And I do think people make a lot of mistakes on what they thought was supposed to happen. But anyway, um, these apostles believed it was imminent. And so you're going to have to decide, well, they didn't know what they were talking about, or, oh, they totally knew what they were talking about, or, well, they were right but wrong, or, well, th no, this was already but not yet. <laughs> and and I do want to talk about that, how this already but not yet idea, I obviously, like any other idea, gets abused from time to time. So, you know, how could they, oh, Jesus came in the, in the late first century, but not yet really. Well, that's kind of difficult. That's sort of like saying he was born in Bethlehem, but not yet. How can both be true, right? And so this is a very difficult topic. And a lot of people just try to shy away from it and not deal with it. And I think that's the wrong answer. I think we need to roll up our sleeves and get in here and wrestle with this thing and uh, see what can be figured out, at least if can anything be ruled out among all the eschatological models that there are. Okay, so these people are being, uh, this salvation was ready to be revealed in the last time. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 5. So these Christians to whom he's writing, they're being guarded through faith, and that's their own faith. It's not God's faith who's guarding them. Uh, it is by means of their own faith that they're being guarded, uh, you know, by God. Uh, so, and they're being guarded for a salvation. They're being kept safe for a salvation 
that's ready to be revealed in the last time, says Peter. Well, Peter was one of these late writers. So he goes on, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you may have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you know, at the revealing of Jesus. That is, when Jesus is revealed, or either when Jesus reveals something. Okay, well, what was ready to be revealed at the last time already? It says in verse 5, a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here we are talking about uh, something was supposed to happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I believe it's the same thing. I believe this is a reference. He's saying, you're going to be, if you stay faithful, you're going to be found in praise and glory and honor at the time when Jesus reveals the salvation. Uh, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we read this earlier. Uh, now we've got the context to go with it. And so this is what we have to understand. This is how they were looking at it. The salvation comes at the end of the story. This is not how most of the modern churches look at it today, uh, or at least not as often as they did then. I think today people sort of take a dualistic view sometimes where they will say the future thing sometimes, but what they really believe is, no, it's already happened. I'm already saved. It's a done deal. So I think they would have understood plainly that it had not yet literally happened. Just as they had not yet been literally transported to God's throne in heaven and been given glorified angelic bodies and been given heavenly homes in God's house and so forth. So here are some salvation passages. And it's important to understand that these are conditional statements, generally of the if-then sort. Uh, Jesus and his apostles were quite willing to talk about this conditional matter as if it were all but settled for those who would stay faithful to God, as it was impossible for him to be unfaithful to them. So let's listen to these few um, and see what we can learn here. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And this is uh, sort of like the abbreviated form of the classical if-then. If anyone enters by me, then he will be saved, and so forth. Uh, the then here would be implied in a logical sense. First uh, Corinthians 15, 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, we looked at this already. And yet, here we have that if, which implies necessarily that if you are not holding fast to the word that Paul preached, then you have believed in vain and will not be saved. Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. What's the implication here? If you do not forgive others, then you will not be forgiven. 
and hence you will not be saved. That is, you will not have eternal life with God in that heavenly Jerusalem, that holy city. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 17. And he said to them, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Okay, well, what was the implication here for that man Jesus is talking to? Uh, if you don't keep the commandments, you're not going to enter eternal life. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, if. What's the implication? If you don't abide in my word, you're not truly my disciples. You won't know the truth, and the truth will not set you free. John 15, 10. To his apostles, he, he was uh, saying this. Uh, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If, right? What's the implication? That if you don't keep my commandments, you do not abide in my love. Well, and again, of course, had Jesus not kept his own Father's commandments, how well would it have gone to boast that, oh yes, I remain in my Father's love? Now this one ought to be quite stinging today, for there are so many camps in Christianity who they want to talk love, 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 love all the time, and yet they don't obey his commands. So by that disobedience, they are undermining the very love they think they have for God. Got, love was not the warm, fuzzy feelings uh, in Jesus' way of looking at it. It was abiding in the teachings. And again, that's one way in which our modern church culture has gone astray uh, in large number. Not completely, fortunately. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. We've looked at this again, and of course it's conditional. Uh, it implies that if you do not hold fast to the word he preached, uh, they would have believed in vain and would not be saved. Second uh, Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. A couple of things here. One, the way Peter thought about all this, their calling and their election was a thing that needed to be confirmed diligently to show it to be true, to make it come to fruition, right? And he says, if you practice these qualities, he'd gone over a lot of virtues in previous verses, you will never fall. Well, what's the implication? If you do not practice these qualities, you will fall. The first century Christians knew quite well that they were not literally saved from the lake of fire until God himself had passed judgment on them individually, stating whether he had been pleased with their conduct or not. Whether they had lived according to the image, uh, to his satisfaction or not. They knew that salvation was a sure thing if they did please God, but they also knew that God would be the judge of that and not they themselves. Oh yes, I pleased God. <laughs> So say I. <laughs> and does God have a say in the matter? Nope. I got it settled already, right? Well, what hubris that is. 
Uh, they did not make the mistake that so many do who judge themselves as saved today. They understood all of this that they listened to Paul. And let me read again. Uh, moreover, this is 1 Corinthians 4, 2 and following. Moreover, it is required of students that they be found faithful. Uh, of stewards, rather. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm aware of, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I think we need to cut it out. Oh, yes, I'm saved. Yes, I'm guaranteed eternal life. You know, didn't Jesus talk about the Pharisees who were confident in their own righteousness and did not consider that they might actually be accountable to God's judgment about their righteousness? Too few today are content to follow Paul's example of waiting for God to judge. And they judge themselves, declaring that they were saved in the past and that, uh, that that's the verdict for their future too, no matter what. So they ignore the not yet part of the already but not yet and jump right to the part where it's all settled in their minds. Paul understood full well that he could not, or that he could still be disqualified for eternal life, even after such a strong start in his faith in Jesus. First uh, Corinthians nine verse twenty-seven. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest—that means unless—after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And, you know, certain camp has a really scramble right here to find a way to explain this verse away. Oh, he's not saying disqualified from eternal life. He's uh, talking about something else. Really? Okay. What is it? <laughs> so, you know, even about the baptism thing, people say, oh, no, 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 that's a work. There, there's no way that could be required. I mean, that's just wrong, Jack. That would be like heretical from Satan. I say, okay, uh, then why do you get baptized? Well, we do it as a, an outward sign of an inward grace. Uh, okay, so you got saved and you got the inward grace, right. And then you get baptized later uh, to show a sign for that. Well, yeah. Okay, well, why do you do it? Well, it, it says to do it. Oh, really? There's commands to get, yes, there's commands to get baptized. Oh, glad to hear that. Okay, <laughs> so so they do uh, they do baptism but they want to not use the scriptures for what's the reason behind it. And, but they will tell me, well, it is commanded. Uh, and sometimes begrudgingly, sometimes they don't know it's commanded. But, you know, if you talk to enough in that camp, they're going to tell you, yes, it is commanded. And I'll say, okay, well, answer me this. What then is the consequence of disobeying the command? And they're like a deer in the headlights and they're like, um, they go silent for several seconds. And then often they come back with something like, well, uh, what, what it is, is they'll have a lesser reward in heaven. Like, well, where are you getting that from? <laughs> and I've yet to see uh, a good defense made of that position. And why is it not you know, like immediately obvious to you? Why do you have to pause and, and really think it over to come up with an answer to that? So they have a baptism as required, but not for the reasons the Bible says, but for some other reasons that they've made up in 
the century since. And then they will say, uh, well, if you don't do it, it doesn't mean you can't be saved. It, uh, it just means you won't get as nice a reward in heaven. Hmm. So I've always found that very dissatisfying. Uh, people have all kinds of issues with the baptism, and there are lots of questions. And, you know, you got to wonder, too, about the timing thing. Would this ever, was it ever supposed to become obsolete? That's a really good question, too, that uh, somebody who's very responsible might want to go look at that also. Um, and we're, you know, I'm just not going to solve all of that today. So one of the big problems here is people want to look at some of the Bible language, pick and choose what they want, and then leave the rest out and not develop an overall model of doctrine that uh, handles all of that language well. And that is such a foolish and mindless and short-sighted approach. It's, it's exactly what's taught by so many pulpiteers. Uh, they are not listening. But God will not be mocked, and he will not bow to the assertions of fools. Somebody can claim for decades, if he likes, that he's saved, uh, but it's God who has the final word on that subject. The humble person can and will accept this, but the proud person won't like it. The same person who won't like it when he or she meets God and recognizes that there's now no way around bowing the knee, that it cannot be avoided any longer, and that there really is an image, and that they really have not lived in that image very well, and that there really is a judgment uh, and a meeting with God for judgment, and that they may themselves, or that they themselves are going to go through it after all. What a rotten surprise for somebody who should have known all along, but did not listen. It's ironic that so many will claim that their faith is what saved them, past tense, done deal, said it and forget it, once saved, always say, and yet they don't really live like they believe. That is, like they have faith in all of God's warnings and Jesus' warnings and the apostles' and prophets' warnings that there's going to be a judgment of each person and that no one is exempt from it and that God really means what he says about all this image business. They prefer to pretend to have faith, but they don't really have it. Rather, they're looking for something else. They're looking for a way out. And so many just prefer to tell you that they're okay and that they're saved and that their eternal security is sewn up already, secured in a foolproof package that not even God himself would ever break apart. But you have to take their word for this because you'll never see uh, God saying any such thing to anybody, that they are guaranteed eternal life regardless of how they conduct themselves. And so uh, I have this one final passage to read you, and this is a little lengthy. This is from Romans 11. Uh, 13 through 22, but I want to really get the context here. Now, I'm speaking to you, uh, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Uh, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, 
Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, let me stop here. Uh, he's talking to the Gentiles and not the Jews in Rome. It all started with the Jews. They were the people of Abraham's faith from the beginning. They were the, one through whom, the ones through whom God had chosen to work throughout the centuries to bring out about the message, uh, the gospel, Jesus, of course, and his sacrifice and so forth, his heroics. Well, he's saying, look, Gentiles are now allowed in to the team. They're allowed on, into the family. Uh, and that's great. But don't forget, this started with the Jews. And a lot of them have gone through a hardening of heart now. And some of them will indeed end up being saved uh, because they'll repent between now and the end. Uh, however, don't be arrogant um, toward the branches. Uh, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So he's, he's telling the Gentiles, keep your head in the game here. Don't lose sight of the fact that you're being allowed to join in. It's not the other way around. It's not these Jews are allowed to join in with you. Um, so he says, uh, then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true uh, that they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Remember, if their faith had gone away, they're not standing fast anymore. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, how could he be any more explicit? So this once saved, always saved business, this would have been just laughable in the first century. Today we'd say, are you smoking crack? <laughs> they didn't say that then because they didn't uh, have crack invented at that time. But, uh, you know, they might have said, are these men drunk? So uh, this is a, such a terrible problem. It's such a pernicious teaching. Uh, and it is, it, it has infected, I'm guessing, over half of those who call themselves Christians in this world. Some people know better. They know it's just common sense. Duh. You know, why would God give eternal life to an insincere person? And so let me talk about forgiveness for a minute. I said some before about it, and not only today, but also in previous uh, episodes. Um, we have got to uh, to get our heads around this, that every one of us sins. We all make mistakes. We all uh, do wrong things on purpose sometimes. Uh, there is such a thing as maturation where you grow and actually get better. And some Christians think that that's unworldly to have that view. Like, oh, you're trying to save yourself by works. <laughs> it's such a stubborn and stupid view. Um, because it doesn't take into account the very scriptures that they claim are from God. So uh, God does have to forgive people. You're not going to get to heaven without God having forgiven you. I hope you get that. The, the best one among us, whoever that might be, uh, is going to require forgiveness in order to get to eternal life. It just is. 
Well, how does God forgive? Some would tell you, oh, he sent Jesus, forgave the whole world, everybody's forgiven, everything's all taken care of, and it's all over, and everybody's saved. That's sort of like the universalist position, uh, if I've not mischaracterized it, and like it doesn't have its own uh, sub subpositions and you know alternatives and all that. But um, you know the the question of uh, did he uh, make forgiveness available to all who then have to somehow accept that, latch onto that, claim that forgiveness, and so forth, or is it even farther? Well, yeah, he made forg- forgiveness available to those who would live in the image, and he doesn't forgive the others. Well, okay. Well, even those living in the image are going to make mistakes. Well, good for us that God is the forgiving sort. He seems, if you read the scriptures, he seems quite to enjoy forgiving people who repent of their sins. And so, you know, we can talk about, well, why was it necessary then for him to make a sacrifice of Jesus? Or why was it necessary for Jesus to pay a ransom? These are fantastic questions. And they deserve our attention. But I'll tell you this, and you tell me if you think this is wrong, God is the forgiving sort. Does he forgive everybody? Oh, no. We already looked at uh, 1 Enoch 22 about the four different places in the underworld for the dead. And one of them was for those whose transgression is complete. And they were going, if I read it right, to be the eternal roommates of Satan in the lake of fire, never to be extinguished where others would indeed be uh, snuffed out, extinguished, annihilated, no longer exist after uh, being tossed into the lake of fire. So God distinguishes between uh, people and their sin. And he seems quite to revel in forgiving those who are penitent, those who change their minds, who repent, to rethink, Uh, He is eager for that. And they have parties about one sinner who repents. Uh, You know, even if there's 99 other people who've already repented, they still have a party over the one who does. So you've got to understand that when people talk about earning your salvation, like, okay, well, that's ridiculous. Because everybody has to be forgiven or you don't make it. And you don't get forgiven because of your good works. Like, oh, well, you helped five old ladies across the street. Therefore, God has no moral choice but to let you into heaven. Because, wow, what you did was just so fantastic that uh, God has to overlook the 12 people you murdered in the last year. (laughs) Right? And the fact that you were late to work that one day. Right? He's got to overlook all that because you helped five ladies across the street. This is sort of, you know, crazy thinking. What God seems to be looking for is who cares about him and who's trying to do the right thing, who appreciates the image and is trying to emulate that by the way they live. And that seems to be the person that he esteems highly and the one that he freely forgives. Uh, And those are the people who grow and mature and do lots of good works, and show themselves to be a blessing in this world, even though this is not the world that they were ultimately created to live in forever, right? So 
Uh, this is a huge topic. I hope I've covered it uh, thoroughly enough that you understand that, yes, they did have some already but not yet language in regard to this kind of topic. Uh, the people were seemed to be in a provisional status. They were in this, uh, what I believe was a very special time in the first century. You know, we've talked some about what all has changed from, from then until now. I don't believe that uh, those writers would say that we today are in exactly all the same context as they were in. Um, I believe they would say, yeah, some things have certainly changed. And of course, it falls to us to figure out, well, what are those things and to try to get it right. However, uh, I do believe that that holy city is uh, open for business and that people who die get to go uh, see God and God tells them what he thinks of their life. And if they're like the good Bible characters, they are uh, flat on their face at this moment. And he tells them, don't be afraid because uh, I count you as faithful. And they could argue, they could say, but I messed up this and I messed up that and I, that thing I did on purpose even and, and I kept making this mistake. And he would be like, look, I forgive that. I know your heart. I like how you love me. I like how you're committed to me. And you're fine. It's all forgiven. And you're welcomed into eternal life. And that's how I think it works. Uh, you may disagree. I'd love to see your reasons for disagreeing, if you have any. Uh, but that's what time I think it is. And I think that um, that holy city shines its light on the world today, that we can read their exploits in the Bible and we can decide, yeah, I want to be like those people and I want to avoid their sins and I want to emulate their successes and their faith. And that's what time I think it is. So uh, I hope this helps you to think through this whole issue. Are you saved or not? Are you being saved? Are you going to be saved? Uh, and I hope that uh, like I've demonstrated that they did, you will shift your thinking more toward the future of it that what will happen when you have that meeting with God, that's when uh, God gets to have a say in whether uh, you will be saved in eternal life or not. Uh, these are sobering subjects for those who don't already get them, especially. You may be in a state of panic right now uh, and looking for a way out. <laughs> well, I just uh, hope that you will humble yourself and and decide, okay, let me take the long, the, let me play the long game here. Let me go study this out and see if what Jack says is right and figure it out from there. Uh, this, I can tell you that no matter what you think about God, he's better than that. If you think that, oh, God forgives everybody. And, um, you know, once you're saved, boy, he's just totally forgiven every sin you might ever commit, no matter what, no matter how many, no matter how much. Um, if you think that and you think that God is great, well, God is better than that. And it could just be that you don't understand how he is better. In other words, you don't understand why the truth about God is better than the misunderstood uh, version of God that you may have in your mind. But he is better than you think. How could we possibly have enough brains to wrap around the whole of his goodness? We can't. We can't fathom all of that. And so what I'm suggesting uh, is that you could 
take an attitude of faith in the scriptures and say, okay, look, this is not what I've been taught before, but I'm going to dig into this and understand it and figure it out so that I come to a mature understanding and I don't have to live at odds with what the scriptures say about salvation, that I can be comfortable knowing that, hey, just like I'm going to die one day, uh, and that's inevitable, I am also going to meet God and Jesus, and that's inevitable, and they're going to tell me what they think about how I did, and I'm going to find out whether I get to live eternally or go to the lake of fire and be annihilated or go to the lake of fire counted as one who was complete in transgression and get to live as Satan's roommate forever in uh, torment. That's how I see it. And again, obviously you may disagree. I just hope you have good reasons for your disagreement and that you can make a good case so that it's mindful and not mindless. So that it's not just a knee-jerk reaction, but you actually can show from the scriptures, which seems to be the way Paul did it. It seems to be the way that the Bereans took it. They were more noble character than the Thessalonians because uh, every day they'd look they check out the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. All right? So that's the honorable and honest and diligent, responsible way to do it. And I hope that you can do that too here and uh, help your friends think through these issues too. And just a postlog here uh, at the end of this two-part uh, series. Obviously, this is um, deep stuff. And it's the kind of stuff that doesn't get talked about very much in very many of the churches. Uh, and yet this is exactly the kind of thing that if we were more careful with it, it would change the culture of Christianity uh, wherever it exists. Uh, this would really help people understand things a great deal. And so this is uh, the, the reason for reflection. This is why it's necessary and why if your church never stops to reflect on things and think them through really well, you're just going to end up making a, a lot of messes uh, in spite of whatever things go well there. So I hope you've enjoyed this and I hope you find it useful and uh, edifying, uh, even if it's troubling. Uh, that's It's okay if some things are troubling. <laughs> so uh, I, God knows that and he's not surprised by it. He's not in a panic. We're going to be okay. We can think through these things and get them figured out pretty well. And since we got so much into baptism in these two episodes today, I think that I will uh, make episode 33 be more about baptism to explain more of that. It is such a difficult topic for so many people, and it doesn't help uh, how much of the conversation is just repeated memes, just again and again, tradition, tradition. Uh, an argument and all this kind of thing. So we're going to take a closer look at that to give it uh, what it deserves. And uh, that too should be controversial and thought um, inspiring, I would hope, and would help you to understand at least better how I see it all and why it makes sense to me. So uh, until next time, thanks for joining in.